0: Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit dairylanedental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Thomas Edison perfected the incandescent light bulb in 1880, consumer demand for electric lighting soared. At the same time, industry began switching to electric motors for all the advantages they had over steam power. Now, this tipping point for electricity ignited a high stakes race to develop the best method for generating it. Billions of dollars were at stake. Within two years, in 1882, the world's first hydroelectric station opened on the Fox River in Wisconsin. Just one decade later, a water-powered station was also producing electricity in Bracebridge. It had been built by William Sutherland Shaw. For generations, the Shaw family tanned leather in Maine and in the early 1890s was expanding into Canada with tanneries at Bracebridge and Huntsville. To power both, Shaw built generating plants in each town, laying business foundations upon which his cousin Charles Orlando Shaw, arriving at Huntsville in 1898, would build upon. Shaw's Bracebridge generating station was a 60-kilowatt operation at the top of the falls beside Henry Bird's Woollen Mill. Because Huntsville lacked waterfalls, this power plant generated electricity using a wood-burning steam engine. An alternative method developed in the competition to create the best way of generating electricity. Steam worked, but required extra work, was dirtier, and cost more. Hydroelectricity, its name incorporating the Greek word hydro for water, denoted the cleaner and more efficient energy source. By 1892, each town contracted Shaw to supply electricity from his privately owned generators for their municipal streetlights. This was temporary for Bracebridge, which that year also contracted a company to build its own power plant. But in 1894, with that contractor defaulting and getting sued by the town, municipal voters in a Bracebridge referendum overwhelmingly approved of council buying out Shaw's generating station for $3,500. In nationalizing a privately owned power company, making it a public utility, Bracebridge was in the vanguard. Along with two other Ontario municipalities, Thorold and Campbellford, Muskoka's capital town became first to own a hydroelectric plant for local power needs. The next year, to ensure having all the electricity it required, Gracebridge Council confidently installed a new turbine and larger capacity generator in its power station. By the 1920s in Muskoka, generating, distributing, and using electricity reached its most eventful decade. Ye- yesterday's luxury had become today's necessity for industry, businesses, and homes. It was now 30 years since kerosene street lamps in Bracebridge had been replaced by electric ones. And for 15 years already, townsfolk could tell at time at night because the four faces of the Main Street post office clock were backlighted by electric light bulbs. Applying science enabled generating electrical energy, distributing it, and using it to power up ever-new dimensions of a rapidly modernizing society. With the electricity revolution, commerce expanded. Economic activity increased. Offices and stores remained open in the evenings. Some sawmills even began operating through the night. Whenever darkness overcame natural light, people just turned on the lights. This artificial light, as it was called, kept spaces operational and extended each day's productive hours. Now, of course, there were wrinkles. In 1920's spacebridge, for instance, although electric light was in use for industrial, commercial, and public buildings, and increasingly in people's homes, power was supplied on a 12-hour basis only. So students and teachers spent their day in classrooms seeing by window light. The windows were built large and high to provide as much natural light as possible, but you can see why daylight saving time was being invented. However, a simpler solution to the natural light shortage came in 1923, when the Bracebridge Water, Light and Power Commission started supplying artificial light for domestic use on a 24-hour basis. Bridgebridge made other electricity adjustments in the Roaring Twenties as well. In October, 1920, the Water, Light and Power Commission installed meters at the premises of all its customers, reasoning that metering electrical services was the way to modernize operations with uniformity precision, and fairness in everyone's charges for power. Another modernizing advance was needed because rates charged for electric lights were still based on the candle power of light bulbs, akin to using horsepower to indicate the strength of a motor vehicle engine as as we still do today. Candle power of lights is a unit for measuring luminous intensity the level of light bulb strength compared to equivalent light emitted by a candle. By the 1920s, however, light bulbs were being rated in watts, making candle power an obsolete term for certain electrical appliances, and certainly this one. Braise Bridges Water Light and Power Commission overcame this problem by recalibrating its rates according to watt usage. Well, I've been talking a lot about Bracebridge in this story of Muskoka's electrification. That is because of all Muskoka's organized communities, only it and Bala were positioned to readily generate hydroelectric power, being built effectively on top of waterfalls. Gravenhurst, Huntsville, Port Carling, Baysville, and other municipalities around the district lacked waterfalls large enough to generate electricity. As predictable as (laughs) sibling rivalry, seeing what was happening in electricity-rich Bracebridge caused consternation in the sister towns north and south. Just as ballads surge into modern times, provoked electric envy in its neighborhood. In 1917 at Bala, envisaging a new use for the Bala Falls, Alexander Burgess built a 100 kilowatt power station on the same mill stream where decades earlier, his father Thomas built a pioneering water-powered sawmill to launch Bala as a settlement. When Bala's lights came on, other villages wanted to join its march of progress. So Bala Electric Light and Power Company, Burgess's operation, ran transmission lines north to Mactier and then around to Port Carling. In 1922, Bala Electric Light installed a second generator at the falls, needed to meet everyone's rising demands for clean energy. Bala Electric Light was a private power company, but Ontario Hydro, created by the Provincial Conservative government in 1905, was doing something similar under its Rural Hydro program, running power lines to areas without electricity. After adding the first rural customers to its lines in 1912, Ontario Hydro's engineers even began developing new applications for electricity on farms. Hydro also tried to create a rural rate schedule that implemented its pledge of power at cost on an equal basis to all. By 1920, to advance its rural hydro program, Ontario Hydro organized rural power districts for better administrative purposes. But farmers and villages looking for action not corporate organization protested slow progress and high costs. So in 1921 Ontario's friendly farmer labour government dipped into provincial contingency funds to pay half of Hydro's construction costs for rural primary transmission lines and three years later increased support for rural secondary lines as well. The result was a moderate growth of rural hydro. Ontario is, after all, a sprawling landscape to wire. Consider this for pace. In 1915, the eastern Muskoka townships McLean and Rideout, with adjacent Sherborne, applied to get a hydroelectric line built from Dorset down to Baysville. 17 years later, the formal opening of Baysville's electric system finally took place on June 30, 1932. The village's oldest resident, 82-year-old Joseph Aldred, who'd been 65 when the application for power was first made, threw the switch and smiled. Now, between the Skolka places like Baysville, McTeer and Port Carling receiving power by long distance transmission lines, and other places like Gracebridge and Ballet directly generating their own hydroelectricity, electricity, the increasingly frustrated towns of Gravenhurst and Huntsville roiled over their continuing dependence on inferior steam generated electricity. Lacking a large enough waterfall within their town limits, both burned wood to power steam engines that turned generators which created their electric power. Despite being sawmill towns, each was running out of fuel for their firebox steam engines. Haskoka became a case study for disparity in hydroelectricity spawning bad relations between rival towns the classic competitive contest between have-nots and haves. After a station break, we'll see how that turned out. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer. When it came to advancing beyond steam generated electricity, rivalry between Muskoka's three towns intensified. Gravenhurst eyed Muskoka Falls, close to Bracebridge. Huntsville planned to generate its electricity by diverting water from Lake of down a 100 foot drop to turbines at Peninsula Lake. The issue about Muskoka Falls was their close proximity to Bracebridge which intended to build its own power plant here to supplement the electricity from Bracebridge Falls. The many issues with Huntsville's costly diversion project of North End Lake of water were adamantly expressed by opposed resort owners and cottagers on the lake, by Baysville's businesses operating mills at its South End Dam, and by parties downstream on the Muskoka River's south branch, relying on its flowing waterfalls to generate their power. When Gravenhurst won the water rights to build its powerhouse at Muskoka Falls, a chagrined Bracebridge turned upstream on the north branch and built its own needed new generating station at Wilson's Falls. Bracebridge was about to advance next to High Falls when increasingly desperate Huntsville sought to establish its own hydroelectric station there. Intruding competitors for hydroelectricity faced opposition from Bracebridge. So Huntsville then negotiated with Graveners to buy power from its Muskoka Falls station. But the talks petered out over distance, not overland, from the falls north to Huntsville, but the big gap between what financially strapped Graveners demanded for power and the price that miffed Huntsville could even countenance paying. Into this cauldron of conflict stepped Ontario Hydro, which Ontario's government had created with the slogan, power to the people. Hydro began to sort out Muskoka's mess by starting with Gravenhurst's power plant. It was very small, producing far less power than potentially available at Muskoka's most majestic waterfalls. And the town was heavily in debt from its timid venture into generating hydro power. So Hydro bought out Gravenhurst's plant and transmission lines. Then Ontario Hydro contracted to supply hydroelectricity from the Falls to both Gravenhurst and Huntsville. In 1915-16, Hydro upgraded this small facility with temporary wartime renovations and additions. By 1970, it was supplying hydroelectricity to Huntsville. And in peacetime 1925, Hydro replaced the Muskoka Falls generating station by a new, much larger operation, harnessing the falls full potential, supplying hydroelectricity, not only to Huntsville and Gravenhurst, but other sections of Muskoka in need of power as well. Meanwhile, Bracebridge built its newest power plant further upriver from Wilson's Falls at High Falls. In all these cases, moving electricity over long distances had become easier and more reliable with the historic switch from direct current, in which Thomas Edison had heavily invested, to alternating current, which Nikola Tesla pioneered. In tandem, advances in engineering and transmission line materials enhanced power distribution. Just as things were evening out, a different challenge hit Muskoka's electricity supply. Imbalance between supply and demand. The Skoka factories had become major consumers of electricity. Indeed, the leather canneries in Huntsville and Bracebridge had begun electric power generation in each town. But in the modern 1920s, new chemical methods for curing hides saw Muskoka lose its competitive advantage, the abundant supply of hemlock bark containing the tannins needed for tanning. For half a century, since 1877, the Beardmore tannery had operated in Bracebridge on the north side of the Muskoka River. A major employer, foundation of the local economy, boon to farmers who harvested hemlock bark, from their lands, and a big consumer of electricity. Now, chemicals made tanning easier and cheaper than using the bark that first attracted three large tanneries to Muskoka. Beardmore closed its Bracebridge plant, consolidating all operations in Acton, Ontario. Suddenly, Bracebridge had far more electricity than it needed. Elsewhere around the lakes, several hundred summer resorts facing increasing electricity demands were installing generators. Villages dependent on Muskoka's summer economy, Baysville, Russell, Windermere, Port Carling, Bala, and others found themselves delicately poised in this energy equation of fluctuating demand and supply for electricity. Unlike most commodities, electricity cannot be stored. So, unless customers are wired up to use it, the energy becomes a wasted asset. Power plants, of course, cut back the flow, but that means their overhead costs are not recovered. Once the Beardmore tannery vanished, Bracebridge's Water Light and Power Commission pondered its substantial block of surplus electricity it had to boost demand. While attracting new industries was a possibility, time was of the essence. Now looked at through new eyes, the town's homes were seen as a customer base already in place. The Bracebridge Power Commission began promoting use of electric appliances and used an economic incentive. It dropped the domestic power rate from 5 cents per kilowatt hour to 3 cents for the first 30 kilowatt hours per 1,000 square feet of floor space and half that amount, 1.5 cents per kilowatt hour for the rest of the home's monthly consumption. It almost paid to use more power. Advent of the 24 hours a day electric service to homes triggered an ongoing change to appliances run by electricity as well. More electric lights burned for longer periods as people shifted in their patterns of living. Then came upgrades from old technologies to new electric powered equipment. In homes, one of the first was typically an electric iron. Most often, women still, still wield, wielded this tool, but it seemed commensurate with their greater freedom, you know, having the right to vote able to drive motor vehicles, getting new opportunities in the roaring 20s, to at least be liberated from the repetitive drudgery of using heavy iron seated atop the kitchen stove and picked up by a detachable handle to be moved over the clean washing. Ironing his shirts at least no longer meant also having to keep a fire going and rotating irons as they cooled. In the same department, The weekly washing itself became much simpler too, with an electric powered ringer washing machine. Labor saving devices were in vogue. Refrigeration using electric motor cooling had already been developed by 1911, but versions beginning to resemble what today would be recognized as a kitchen fridge did not make their presence felt in the consumer marketplace until General Electric introduced its first electric refrigerator in 1927. Appearance of radios in the 1920s added to electricity use. Although in Muskoka's rural areas and summer places still waiting for electricity, people gathered around their wireless sets, powered by groups of batteries carefully well held together, which brought radios to life and Amos and Andy into their living rooms. Now, a century later, you can look around and gasp at how far the electricity revolution has reshaped society. Or you can just wait for a power failure to ponder in the silence and darkness, how utterly dependent we've become on electricity and how vulnerable to its loss. Over here, using the power at Hunter's Bay Radio in Huntsville, I thank you for listening on your radio to another installment of Muskoka's Modern History. Our producer is Jacob Snow Krieger. I'm Patrick Boyer.